So our second interview from the 2019 Great American Beer Festival is what happens when you allow more cooks into the kitchen, because I don't think I would have gone looking for breweries from New Orleans had Carl not been a part of this decision making process. Absolutely. We kind of took a different approach this year. Last year, we really picked breweries we wanted. This year, we kind of went outside the box and tried to look for good stories. And I thought Carl really brought a lot of that with the two breweries that we got to interview from the great state of Louisiana. I really enjoyed speaking with Eric Jensen from Carlo Beer Lab. Anytime I can talk to somebody from New Orleans and get their perspective on food and beer and what it means to be a part of the culture of such an amazing city, I'm on board. And Eric was no exception. Speaking of the area and specifically where your brewery is, your name is actually tied geographically to the specific location in the city that you're located at, right? Yeah, so we're Parlo Beer Lab, and that's actually spelled P-A-R-L-E-A-U-X. I am Eric Jensen. I'm the owner, head brewer, head of fermentation, head of MacGyvering at Parlo Beer Lab in New Orleans, Louisiana. We're taproom-only brewery that brews a lot of mixed fermentation, pilsners, IPAs. Uh, We have a large beer garden, and we are super family-friendly. I've been around brewing most of my life. I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Awesome beer town, around a lot of beer. And my wife's from Denver, Colorado, so she's been around beer for a long time as well. And then one day turned to my wife, Leah, and said hey, what if we open a brewery? And she was like, hell yeah, let's do it. And so it's cool to have a super supportive wife that's been there along the way to help support me there. So Parlo, it's broken French for by the water, which is twofold. We're in the Bywater neighborhood in New Orleans, and we're also literally like 200 yards from the Mississippi River. So Parlo, yeah, kind of, again, to honor the neighborhood. And for people that don't really know the area, you're kind of on the opposite side of the water from you is the Lower Ninth Ward. Actually, the Bywater is also technically the Upper Ninth Ward. You know, we're spitting distance from the Lower Ninth Ward. A lot of people will say this. It's unlike any other American city. It might be the most un-American American city. It's just infused with all this Afro-Caribbean, European, American culture that lives on the streets. People don't live inside their houses. They live on the streets, and that's super cool. And so one of the most important things about us building a brewery was to have a big outdoor space because the way people exchange social capital in New Orleans is just super special. And if you've ever been there, even if it's just for a trip, you can kind of feel it. And so, and then living there, I feel very honored and humbled to be able to live in my favorite city in the world. And I'm feel excited to raise my son there and I just have so much pride for the city of New Orleans. It's not for everybody. It's got its challenges. Super funky, weird, be whoever you want to be type cities aren't for everyone, but if it is for you, it's a lot of fun. But 80% of New Orleans was just like completely devastated by Katrina, but you know, the lower ninth ward was just hit so hard. 
And even now when you go over there today, it's cool to see how it's rebounded and the revitalization, but it's very pronounced like the effects of Katrina when you go through that neighborhood. Like physically, you can see like something happened here. Even if you didn't know the hurricane had happened, you're like, something happened here because it doesn't look like a normal neighborhood. There's just like big patches of land that haven't been rebuilt. So, Were you still in Michigan when Katrina happened or were you down in New Orleans? Well, I was in New Orleans. I was a high school uh, social studies teacher teaching all of civics and all that stuff. So teaching down there and I've done a couple evacuations the years leading up to that. And so I think, especially being so young, you can get used to be like, ah, this is just another evacuation. You know, we'll head out and we'll, we'll be back next week. And I literally left with a plastic grocery bag with a T-shirt and like a pair of underwear in it. And that's it. Thinking I'd be back on Monday for school. I didn't know what would happen next. I mean, proceeded to be out of the city for six weeks. And my wife and I couch surfed all around the country until we were allowed to be back in. Like, no one was allowed back in the city for over six weeks. And even after that, which was one of the big reasons I, we ended up staying in New Orleans. Like, we were really young when Katrina happened, and it could have been, like, an opportune time for us to be like, you know, we can go somewhere else. Like, New Orleans has been through a lot. You know, it'd be easy for us to transition. But we got back to New Orleans, and we were like, man, the city's just so awesome. Let's buy a house. And so we bought a house like right after Katrina. We just loved the city so much. We wanted to be a part of like rebuilding it. And so really that's kind of the work I did before being in beer is like was helping to be a part of like rebuilding in an education system where literally almost every single school children went to was like completely devastated. And so helping rebuild that in a super unique system was pretty incredible. My wife was in the healthcare world and helped build community health clinics that serve people across the spectrum all over New Orleans. And so, uh, so yeah, it was a lot of fun. So then after 15 years of doing that, it was time to do something fun. One day turned to my wife, Leah, and said, hey, what if we open a brewery? And she was like, hell yeah, let's do it. And so it's cool to have a super supportive wife that's been there along the way to help support me there. You hit it on the head. It's so special that a place like that gets knocked down over and over again. And that people say, you know what? This place is worth saving because it's so special. Let's rebuild because it's important. And doing the math, knowing that, you know, this is a reality of living here, but saying, I want to be a part of this community again. I want to open this business. I want to be a nexus in this community and accepting that and knowing that this is just part of being here is impressive. You know, the city struggles with a lot of things, you know, that includes poverty, socioeconomic issues, all these things. On top of that, being pounded by these hurricanes and a hurricane could devastate the city every single year for the next 100 years. And the people of New Orleans would come back every single year because they love the city that much. It's special. Like when you go, like in the, it's fall right now, so it's second line season. And you kind of see it on TV, like the parades in the streets. Like that's not for commercials. Like you come out a Sunday in fall, whether the Saints are playing or not, there's a second line. And the second line is just people packed in the streets. Right being led by these brass bands, walking down like the middle of busy intersections, like just walking down like Colfax Avenue here in Denver or something. And it's just like a fun party for like four hours, just walking around. That's real. People do that all the time. New Orleans is very unique in the flavor, the music that you mentioned, the food. How does that influence when you're making beer? Well, my belly keeps getting bigger and bigger every year. So, I mean, yeah, again, lucky. You know, when I make beer, we're a beer lab, and, you know, we do a lot of different mixed fermentation things, um, and people ask me all the time, like, what other beers inspire me? But actually, I'm probably more inspired by flavor combinations, so seeing the way 
chefs layer of different flavors or seeing like a good mixologist because New Orleans is a great booze city. Uh, seeing the way mixologists or even vintners create terroir wines, like these are things like I think about all the time. And so being in New Orleans and seeing the way flavors are everywhere, I think about it all the time and the way we can make like super flavor forward, but balanced beers. And this is something I really wanted to ask you about because you're right. I mean, the culinary tradition is so strong. Do you think about that as you think about your ingredients? Do you look at specific dishes and go, man, I could make something that would pair perfectly with barbecue shrimp? Yeah, I think so. You know, we have several uh, chefs around the city that come into the brewery all the time. And so, you know, I love talking and, you know, shooting the shit with them about like what they're thinking about. And so we actually have a sous chef at a great restaurant called Bywater American Bistro, which is like a top notch uh, restaurant just down the street from us. He lives around the corner. He's Trinidadian. And so he infuses like his Trinidadian heritage into the way he cooks all the time. That includes lots of like fermented hot sauces. But when he's creating fermented hot sauces, sauces like he's layering in like these really sweet flavors and doing it in really interesting ways and so I love chatting with him about the ways to do that within beer especially when I'm aging something in a barrel for like a year with a bunch of brett and pdo and like how can the flavors I put in there really layer that and so we just made a spruce tip beer um, with some juniper and we're putting that into a barrel but just also thinking about how it tastes now and how it's going to taste a year from now what does that mean in terms of like the mixed culture we want to put in? Because I have a half dozen mixed cultures I use. Do I want to put one that produces some more funky horse blanket flavors that might overpower like the spruce flavor that's there right now? Or do I want to put like just a straight Brett Clausinii in there that produces more fruity flavors that might actually enhance the spruce? And so thinking really intentional about like what I'm putting into those barrels all the time, which goes back to my conversations with my chef friend Brent thinking about like, if he were me, what would he be thinking about? Would I be trying to create more funk with like a spruce tip beer? Or would he be trying to like more sweet or just dry and mineral and bubbly? What direction should I go in? So it's fun to kind of like bounce that off someone who thinks in the same way as I do, but in a different field. So it's kind of like a fresh face to talk to. Because when you talk to beer people, other brewers, it's awesome to bounce ideas off of them. But sometimes it's nice to talk to someone who is not in beer, but understands flavors really well. It's my understanding that in the South, the common guy has some very strongly held beliefs about beer. How much do you have to lean on your history as an educator to bring them into 2019? That's a good question. You know, the craft beer drinker in New Orleans, some people say it's like in its adolescence. The Southeast in general is like one of the last strongholds for macro beer. And outside of like the city of New Orleans, it still is bud country. There's a lot of that education that happens. And especially if they walk into our place, they're not getting your typical brown, blonde beers. You're getting these mixed fermentation beers. You're getting sour beers. You're getting all different types of things. We have like an Italian Pilsner and even people even though an Italian Pilsner is still a pretty simple thing they come in as like what makes it Italian you know and so I love beer because beer is like the people's drink it should be simple and I don't care how fancy the barrel it goes into or I'm putting like super unique wild yeast strains in the end of the day, I want that beer to be as simple as the bud they might have been drinking a few years ago, and I want it to be presented that way. And so I don't want it to be pretentious. So sometimes that means if people are very early into the craft beer world, it means talking about it in a simple way that lets them come in the door without thinking it's too fancy. It's kind of one of the things that bothers me about the wine world. I love wine, but sometimes you walk into a, a wine store and you feel so 
uncomfortable because you don't even know what to look for. And then the sommelier working there is like using words you don't even understand. I don't want that to be like that at my place. If they come in and they say, like, what's a mixed fermentation beer with grapefruit? I'm like, oh, you know, it's a tart, easy to drink. It's got a lot of lemon flavors. It's like real sharp. Here, have a sample. Tell me what you think of it. Make it real easy and simple. Was it simple to decide which beers to bring to the festival this year? It was kind of a, a rush to decide what ones to bring at the last minute. Because we want to bring beers that kind of reflect what we do. But it's also looking at the production schedule as well. We love to make European Pilsners. So I was like, let's bring our Bohemian Pilsner because we love it. And I want to drink it while I'm sitting at the booth. And then let's bring a Kettle Sour because it's easy, it's simple, and it's also a nice gateway for people into sours. Some of our sours we make, we actually will use the enzyme they use in brute IPAs to fully attenuate it down. So we're actually creating a really dry sour. So it's like bubbly and almost champagne-y. We call it Prosecco de Pesca to mimic a Bellini. So it's just a really dry kettle sour fermented with peach. And then we brought a Brett Saison with a, one of my favorite mixed cultures. Produces a ton of like lemon and lime. Uh, has like a hint of tartness. It's not horse blankety at all. What was the last one? Oh, yeah, yeah, to bring the IPA. So I never intended for Parlo to be an IPA brewery. I like to drink IPAs, but I didn't think I would love making them. And we got such a positive response right from the beginning of opening to the IPAs we were making that part of our reputation is the IPAs we make now. So my friends in New Orleans like to joke all the time that it's almost Jazz Fest 50 weeks out of the year. (laughs) Uh, So the week after Jazz Fest is done, it's almost Jazz Fest. I wanted to ask, are you allowed to use the name? I love the name. It brought back so many memories. The guy actually Mm -hmm. that wrote the theme song for our podcast and me skipped school at age 19 and took off and went to Jazz Fest when we were in college. And as soon as I saw It's Almost Jazz Fest, I was instantly transported (laughs) to that age, that time in my life. I was like, what a perfect name for that. So I guess, is Jazz Fest not copyrighted? You're asking too many questions over there. Sorry. (laughs) I don't know if the Jazz Fest is trademarked, and I also don't know that the Jazz and Heritage Festival would actually come at us for that. Um, They are pretty cool, and it's not like I'm making a ton of money off of what they're doing. So there's lots of Jazz Fest themes around town. It's kind of like Jazz Fest is a part of the culture. I don't think it's a big deal. I think it's great that you get to call it that because it it instantly transports you to that place if you've been there before. Jazz Fest is my Christmas, it's my New Year's, it's my 4th of July. It's like Jazz Fest is a magical time in the year. If anyone that's never been to Jazz Fest, they should put it on their bucket list. It's not just a music festival that happens in like an old horse track, which is like what the actual festival is. You think of New Orleans having all these music clubs, and all of a sudden all of those music clubs are packed with some of the world's best blues, jazz, funk, jam, like all these different bands from around the world pack into the city and music lovers from all over the world. So it's like you're surrounded by people that love music. And so the city is just like exploding with awesome music that goes literally all night. People get up and then they go watch music at Jazz Fest. There's crawfish boils smell in the air on every single block. There's no like VIP parties. You walk by on the street and you see a barbecue or a boil you're welcome to it. That's kind of New Orleans. It's open arms. I parked my car at someone's house I'd never met before. The guy asked me for 20 bucks and I was like, well, that's the last time I'll see my car. We came back. They invited us in for dinner. I've Mm. never experienced anything like that in my life. Yeah. It's a open door policy in the city. People love life down there and they love sharing it with other people, which is why I love being there. 
super excited to raise my kid there because it's not just like that. It's super diverse. All walks of life are there. It is. If you want to be an open-minded person, grow up in New Orleans because you're going to see literally every single type of person. It'll be a Tuesday morning. You'll see a dude walking down the street with no shirt and like have the Star Spangled Banner painted on his legs and he'll be, <laughs> you know, singing out loud. And he's like, oh, it's okay. That's part for course. So people kind of they do whatever they want to do in that city. Everyone's like, okay, cool. Rebirth Brass Band's most famous song is called Do What You Wanna, and that's kind of a motto for the city. Like in New Orleans, do what you wanna. I think you mentioned that the IPAs weren't maybe the ones that tickle your fancy the most, but you just happen to be really good at them. That particular one that you were pouring, at first I thought it was hop forward, but then it seemed to hop finish as well. It's mm-hmm. just really hoppy. Mm-hmm. What goes into that beer? Yeah, also super soft as well. So getting into the nuts and bolts of the brewery, we're a bunch of nerds that love science. Like even though I was doing education policy work, I've always been into science. Uh, we have a microbiologist that works for us. We have a physicist that works for us. And so we just kind of nerd out on little details. And so when we design a beer, we sit down and we design it from start to finish and what it looks like on paper. And then we try to execute that plan. And so for our IPAs, like very early on, it started with water chemistry. We're really, really serious and hard on water chemistry. Unfortunately, the water quality in New Orleans isn't optimal, uh, mostly because our groundwater is so warm. When it's coming out at 85, 90 degrees, the city nukes it with ammonia and chlorine, chloramines. And so we run all of our water through carbon filters, RO system, UV light. So we're getting very little like mineral content in our water. And then we can backbuild our water profiles. And so with all of our hazies, we do a really high chloride to sulfate ratio, really high on the chloride side. And so it starts right there to create a super soft water. These hazy IPAs are super popular right now, but I think when they're made really well, they're a good entry point for that beer drinker that is still kind of trying to navigate into the craft beer world. And I think it's such a good entry point for them because it's not aggressive It's a little sweet, and you're really highlighting and shining what the hop is about. Hops are just exploding with all these oils that have these crazy aromas and flavors in them. And so being able to manipulate that out is important. So, you know, we're trying not to expose our hops to high heat very much. And so when we're whirlpooling, we're whirlpooling really cool. We'll put a lot of hops in it. We're not exposing it to high heat, so it's creating that bitterness. We like to put a pinch of salt in our IPAs as well. So it's, uh, again, taking from the culinary world. So using salt that's not at a level that's perceivable, but enough that can help enhance flavors as well. And then having like a real tight fermentation schedule as well. And so when we're putting hops into the fermenter is really important. We put hops in kind of based on where the beer is attenuated. So we kind of monitor how far the beer is fermenting out. And we use a yeast strain that produces all of these citrusy flavors that complement the hops that we're using. I think it's really popular. I think a lot of breweries are using it. The Kvike strains of yeast that are out there are just like producing these awesome beers. It is like this magical yeast that has taken the brewing industry by storm. And we started using it pretty early on and kind of learning with it. Brewing with Kvike yeast can be really hard um, because it brews so fast. It can make a beer in 24 hours. And so... Being able to hop in that schedule is really hard. And so learning with the yeast, yeah, that's kind of a long-winded answer too. We're detail-oriented on the way we make our IPAs, and we take detailed notes, so the next time we make them, we kind of like, all right, let's do something a little bit different to improve it. Everything you described there sounds a lot about adaptability, 
Does this come from your love of MacGyver? Mm. <laughs> I do love MacGyver. I don't know how you found that out. We do good research. You know, I tore my Achilles about four years ago. I had to sit, you know, I sat on the couch for like a month. I couldn't do anything. And I watched all of the MacGyvers from start to finish in like a week and then like watched them again. So if you spend a day in a brewery, like you got to be able to MacGyver stuff. You're duct taping fermenters and you're like super gluing fittings. The night before I came here, we were doing a huge stout, double mash, really like 14, 15 hour day. And I was like finally cleaning up and I looked at the fermenter and I was like, what the hell? It's not at the temperature I want it to be at. I go out, freaking chillers out. A sensor blew, and so I spent the next two hours MacGyvering our chiller to get it to work, and I got home super late, but it happens all the time, so. Please tell me you used a Swiss Army knife. I used a plastic straw, a toothpick, and a piece of my hair. Well played, sir. (laughs) Yeah, it worked great. I think it's still working. Good. (laughs) So why are you guys like the Goonies? Such a good movie. It's a great movie. That's part of what we do here, too, is geek Mm. culture. And so we saw this little note about you, and we wanted to ask, because that's a favorite of ours as well. We're a bunch of geeks in a brew house trying to navigate through this uh, maze. Uh, And at the end, what Parlo Beer Lab is really trying to do is we're trying to find Chester Copperpot's secret recipe. There's a secret recipe out there that makes a gold beer, and we know it's out there, and we're going to find it. Our team is very much like the Goonies. And it's your time. Down here. Yes, it is. It is. Don't be throwing any booby traps at me. <laughs> Booty traps. The Bayou Drift. I've never had a lemony beer before that wasn't overly sour. How did you pull that off? Yeah, Bayou Drift. I mean, that was a last minute name, too. Bayou Drift. 96.3. Bayou Drift. Country it's like the Fast yeah. and the Furious with speedboats. I know. We. Uh, it was like naming beers we make all these different beers all the time we're constantly thinking of these names which stupid names and this was a last minute name we were like uh what do we call this you know it's a mixed culture that's been drifting a little bit in the way it's creating beer let's call it bayou drift and then like 10 minutes after i pressed submit on the gabf i just started thinking to myself oh my god this sounds like a classic rock station bayou drift come on down and get another six pack of bayou drift so anyway sorry That beer is a combination of several different Brett strains, and then it does have a PDO strain in it. So it creates like a lot of these lemon and limony flavors, but it has, I would say, a balanced acidity, but it's not sour or tart. Really, it's about understanding the mixed culture that we're putting in there. And you can prohibit a lot of sourness being created by the hops you use. The more bitterness you kind of put into the boil can kind of prohibit lactic acid producing bacteria from creating too much. But it can also be a balance. So if you like bitter it just enough to where you allow it to create some acidity, but not too much. So it's like if you only use like 10 IBUs, I know that beer is going to like get sour uh, with this mixed culture. But if I put in like 24. Five IBUs, it'll start to create some sourness, but it won't go too far. Uh, so really, it's about understanding that mixed culture because there's three different Brett strains in there that have kind of evolved uh, over time. It's on like its sixth or seventh generation, and those Brett strains all do different things. And then there's a PDO strain in there as well that kind of can activate depending on how much IBUs are in there. Its base is mostly just uh, Belgian Pilsner malts and raw wheat. Pretty simple. 
And then the flavor that's coming out is purely yeast driven, which is why I love Saison's and making like mixed culture Saison's because they're yeast driven beers. There's not a single ounce of lemon peel or lime peel in that thing. It is just created by the yeast. And it's so cool to see. That's like the miracle of biology. See what these bugs create. I love it. I love yeast driven beers, especially ones that create these flavors. They taste like actual foods, but there's none of that in there. It's a mixed culture with some Pilsner malt and some raw wheat, and that's it. And it created like this super lemon, limey, refreshing Saison that's really balanced. I was curious, like if we look at the four that you brought here, you have a Prosecco, Czech Pills, Bayou Drift, and Jazz Fest. Mm -hmm. If we looked at those four and I said to you, I want to take this home tonight and I want to pair these one, two, three, four with a classic Louisiana dish, <laughs> what would you choose for those different beers? Well, that's a good question. Well, I think the Prosecco de Pesca, like that's your champagne. You should like start with that. And so have that maybe with a cheese plate or a charcuterie plate, something like real light and bubbly. Maybe actually the appropriate thing to have would be uh, some hogshead cheese. So if anyone's ever had hogshead cheese, it's not actually cheese. It's a working man's terrine or... Your wife is squirming over there. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. An authentic hogshead cheese is like literally it's like the meat off the head of a pig and they'll create like a pate. They don't confuse anything in the marketing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, But it's delicious. It's freaking awesome. The Czech Pills, classic Bohemian style Pilsner, probably have that with probably a nice piece of redfish with a nice lemon sauce on top uh, would be super nice. Redfish is everywhere. It's delicious. It's a nice, light, flaky gulf fish that swims in the, uh, the marshes down there and is super fun to catch. I love fishing too, so I catch a lot of uh, redfish. Cook it on the half shell, which means you slice this fish in half and you cook it with the shells on the grill. Bayou Drift? Bayou Drift. I just can't. I got to say it that way. I don't know how you said it. You got to say Bayou Drift. Let's see. That's a fun one. I think that's a diverse one. Because it does have a little bit of acidity, it could be nice to cut against something like a nice steak with a Bernay sauce on it. I think it could go really nice because I think it has enough acidity to cut against that. I'm not a big fan of like having big, bold beers with big, bold dishes. So I think having like that lemony, limey, a little bit of funk could go well with a nice raw piece of steak. Jazz Fest. Jazz Fest, man, that's crawfish boil. I do a big crawfish boil every year for Jazz Fest. I put a ton of spices in it, but I also put artichokes, I put Brussels sprouts, I put corn, I put tofu, I put pineapple in my crawfish boils. So it's like super spicy. And our IPAs are a hint on the, the sweeter side. That's the sweetest of the four beers we have. And so I think that sweetness with like that really juicy, hoppy flavor uh, would go really well with a spicy crawfish boil. Your answers were fantastic. So thank you for that. I'm just planning my menu when I get down there in a couple of weeks. So. Uh, we're going to have to go eat after oh, we get man. done recording now. I know. I didn't even mention shrimp po'boys, oysters. Like actually the Prosecco and oysters would probably go really well. That's probably what I would do. We made an oyster stout like last November, and uh, it was a benefit we did for Oyster South, which is a nonprofit that advocates for the Gulf Coast oyster industry. But we worked with a, a local oyster farm just down the road from the brewery, and we threw a ton of oysters shells into the mash, and then we threw all the meat and liquor into the wort, into like a dry Irish stout base, and created a super fun beer. I could eat oysters every day, and when I do eat oysters, I eat them by the dozen. It's just so awesome. 
living in New Orleans, like there's benefits to living on the Gulf Coast and like having access to oysters that were taken out of the water literally like hours before. And like you put that in your mouth and the salinity in the water and the oyster, man, I love it so much. All right, sorry, I went on a tangent there. No, that's fine. That's the whole point. I'm dreaming about oysters now. <laughs> I did want to leave a little room for your experience this year, and then if there was anything in particular you guys wanted to talk about with the brewery, anything that's going on back home in the weeks or months after the festival. Yeah, so our experience here is a ton of fun. So uh, my wife's family's up here in Denver, so it's always fun for us to come to GABF. It's such an incredible festival. It's just like, you know, breweries from all over the country that are making great beers that I don't have the ability to try. We're living in such a dreamy time right now for beer because you can go to any corner of this country and drink awesome beer. You could go to Bismarck, North Dakota. You can go to Wichita, Kansas. You can go to Podunk, Alabama, and you can get some awesome beer everywhere. And so I love that. And it's, uh, I love to see, you know, the awards ceremony just happened. And, you know, it was awesome to see like three small breweries take the Juicy Hazy IPA category. Just like kind of like reiterates that there's a lot of people making great beer, but there's also a lot of like little breweries. And so being able to like talk to these people and, you know, there's a, a little like three barrel brewery sitting next to us up at the booth upstairs and they won two awards today it's their first year entering their name's pilot and they won two awards today and they were like holy crap i can't believe that happened but they were making really good beer and that's really cool to see so gabf is tons of fun it wears me out because there's just so much so because there's stuff going on before the festival and after the festival brewers are getting together i also have a 15 month old you know he likes to get up in the morning so it's a ton of fun and so, yeah. And then in terms of the brewery back in New Orleans, you know, we're a neighborhood brewery. We don't distribute beer. Unfortunately, Louisiana has some uh, tough laws that make it hard for small breweries to distribute. So we're taproom only, but we're totally cool with that. We like it. It allows us to really focus in on the things we like to do, like our mixed culture stuff. But I think on the horizon, we called this summer the summer of Cezanne because we brewed a ton of Cezanne bases that we put into wood. And so over the course of the next six to seven months, we have a ton of like bottle releases we're going to be doing of some barrel-aged Cezannes. And then we just bought a candy machine. So we're, yeah, hollow bag. You got to make money and then spend it back at the brewery. So we bought a fancy new piece of equipment that puts beer into cans. And so we hopefully by the end of the year, you'll see some Parlo four packs coming out. We'll probably definitely be putting that Chuck Pills in, uh, into cans. Great beer. Next to the mixed fermentation stuff, the European lager brews are like my favorite to make. They're just so delicate, but so fun to make. When you make a good one, we just released our Oktoberfest Marzen, and it's like, man, I could just drink that every day. It's just so smooth. It's such a simple beer, but so nuanced, and I just, I don't know. So I'm excited to put all of our lagers into cans and our IPAs, and so, yeah, it's fun for, you know, we're a small brewery. I mean, I guess we're technically a family-owned brewery. It's a big deal for us to buy a candy machine and start putting beers into cans. We're a small staff, and so it means... We'll be expanding our staff a little bit more with packaging. So it's fun to think about growing a little bit. So that's kind of the big thing. And then other than that, if anyone's ever in New Orleans, we welcome people to come by. We have a huge beer garden. You know, at the brewery, we're lucky that we live in Louisiana, so anything grows. And so we have a little citrus orchard in our beer garden. We grow five different varieties of citrus back there. We have giant fig trees. We have two giant pecan trees that cast a shadow over the backyard. And so 
We grow muscadines back there as well. And so we use all that stuff in making beer. So it's kind of fun. Uh, and it's like right there in the beer garden for people to wander around and experience too. So we want the brewery to feel like kind of like you're hanging out in someone's backyard and not like you're in some like well manicured place that's been designed by a firm in an expensive office building. We do most of the stuff ourselves. We MacGyver stuff ourselves. So congratulations on getting into canning. That is a big step. Yeah. Any of you guys have experience in canning? Oh, God, no. We don't really have experience in anything. Mm. A little bit. My family used to own Coca-Cola in my hometown, so I watched them put the canning machine in 35 years Mm. ago. But other than that... That sounds like enough experience to come be the packaging (laughs) manager at Parlo Beer Lab. (laughs) If my girlfriend heard you say that a little too loud, she'd be like sending you the resume right now. I mean, she's got Louisiana ties. She does. She's got family there, you know, live a great Stop. life. Stop. She's listening. <laughs> I wanted to ask you something specifically about the canning, though. So when you start canning, will you be able to sell on your own out of the location with the cans, or will you have to get a distributor that puts them out into the retail space? We're going to sell straight out of the tap room. That's it. Again, unfortunately, uh, Louisiana is really hardcore three-tier state which means any ounce of beer any brewery sells off their site has to go through a distributor. And on top of that, beer contracts with distributors are really rigid. Essentially, contracts are in perpetuity. So when you sign with a distributor, you're signing for a long, long time. And it's really hard to get out of that. So, And we're not trying to grow into being a big production facility. And that's, so there's a lot of great breweries in New Orleans that do a great job that get their beers out there. You're still going to have to come to Parlo. We're just going to have four packs in a fridge for you to take home with you when you come. So we sell crawlers as well, uh, so you can do that. And a lot of our barrel-aged stuff is in uh, champagne bottles, So, but we'll just add four packs to that. But, yeah, it won't be distributed, unfortunately, but it means you just got to come by and get some. And for anybody that spent any time in New Orleans, the thing that's so categorically insane about that is that I can go to a drive through and get a 64-ounce yeah. daiquiri as long as the little bit of paper stays on the tip of the straw, perfectly legal. One of the most popular things we sell at the brewery is actually Go Beers because you forget when you leave New Orleans, like the rest of the world isn't sane like New Orleans because when you buy a beer in New Orleans, you can walk out the door and walk down the street with that. Just got to be in a Go Cup, a plastic cup. And so we sell, you know, a lot of people in the neighborhood just walking their dog or walking their kids. They'll stop in the brewery and get a couple Go Beers and they'll go because you can just walk down the street with your beers because it's totally fine to go mobile with your alcohol in in louisiana (laughs) it is it's crazy like being here at gbf this week you know i'm over at some breweries and it's like we got a half a beer left and we're trying to walk down the road to go to another brewery i gotta pound that beer that's just like ridiculous yeah it's a part of like it's part of what makes it special and you get so used to it that when you leave you're like wait the rest of the world doesn't do it like this so, I don't know, another reason why New Orleans is awesome, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> you guys are the second brewery that we've sat down today. Also a, a husband and wife team. It's great to see that kind of support. I love coming to the Great American Beer Festival, not only to drink the beer, but to hear these great stories that get told about how you got there. And it's one of the things that our listeners appreciate the most. So, again, thank you for your time. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I just echo the same thing. I mean, one of the cool things about being a part of the industry and being at this festival is like meeting not just 
cool brewers, but people that are supporting the industry like you guys, really kind of showcasing like these stories. It's just like you can find awesome beer in every corner of the country right now. Every single one of these little breweries is like a snowflake that has like really cool stories behind them. It could be a former engineer that worked for NASA, or it could be like a board philosophy professor, or it could be... A physicist like you have. (laughs) Yes, we do have a physicist that went to Columbia. So he's a very, very smart man. I have your next million dollar t-shirt idea because as you were talking, I was thinking about basically what you just said. And you guys need a t-shirt that just says behind every great brewer is a wife. Nah. Because <laughs> this is the second foundation story we've heard today that's like, if the wife wasn't there, the whole thing falls apart. My wife is 50%. She's not 49%. She's at least 50% of what makes Parlo Beer Lab be Parlo Beer Lab. We're supporting our family. And one of the cool things about being a parent duo here is uh, we have a 15-month-old. And it is exciting for me to think about him knowing intimately, like, where mom and dad go to work. He comes and we give him a broom and he can, like, sweep up the place. And so for him to, like, grow up intimately, not just knowing where mom and dad go to work, but being a part of it. And then also, like, we're in a neighborhood. And so we have tons of families. And so... Like, all of a sudden, those families become an extension of our family for Arlo, our son. So our vision to open Parlo, there's the beer vision of what we wanted to make. But equal to that was, like, the space we wanted to create. And we didn't want to be in an industrial park. We wanted to be in a neighborhood because we wanted to be a part of the fabric of the city, of the neighborhood, and supporting it and being a place for families to come to. And so it is... Fun to come on Friday nights and see like all of the families come after work and hang out. And it's just, uh, like I said before, it's seeing the social capital that's exchanged in the city of New Orleans and having like a little, little place in New Orleans for people to do that is a lot of fun. So I feel very honored. What was your son's name? Arlo. Is that also with an E-A-U-X? I got a real quick funny story about that. Our son was born, and we named him Arlo. We went through the whole parent naming process of, like, what we wanted to name him. We're like, we love the name Arlo. We never, I swear to God, never thought of Arlo and Parlo going together. We call our manager at Parlo, like, the day after he's born to say, hey, just wanted to let you know our son was born, and we named him Arlo. And immediately out of his mouth, he goes, Arlo Parlo. That's awesome. He's Arlo from Parlo. Arlo. And so now for the last 15 months, like every one of my friends is like, baby Parlo, baby Arlo, Arlo Parlo. And it's been nonstop. And we spell it A-R-L-O, but everybody that we know ignores that and just puts an E-A-U-X on it because they think it should. Yeah, there's a whole branding line right there. Holy moly. (laughs) I know. Well, our kids' shirts probably sell better than anything else already. We have a little hip-to-the-hop shirt. But yeah, it's Arlo from Parlo. My wife and I looked at each other and both facepalm like, oh, well, it's awesome. Yeah, we love the name Arlo. So he's a beautiful boy who will spend many, many years being called Arlo from Parlo. He's a kid that's got two awesome parents, and he gets to grow up in a brewery. I'm pretty sure he's going to turn out okay. Yeah, yeah, I think he'll be fine. Well, thanks again to both of you. Your time is much appreciated. Awesome. I appreciate you you guys a ton. Cheers.